God is our salvation, he will take us in. And it is to that which we look and wait for the Lord. Here in John chapter 14, Jesus begins with this memorable text to us that we're familiar with. Let not your heart be troubled, or as hearts as it's mentioned here in the ESV. It's a beautiful admonition and one worthy of keeping with you. That is, for your heart not to be troubled, hence comfort in troubling times. And these indeed are troubling times. (laughs) 2020, for me anyway, has been a year to forget. I don't know about you. I I hope uh, we have better times ahead, although it can look very bleak and at times and perhaps uh, create additional hardship and trouble. Particularly, we've dealt with this last year, as you know, an unprecedented response to the pandemic of COVID. It's contributed much to fear, anxiety, and, and quite frankly, hardships to the population and to the world at large. Then our attempts to mitigate, which is important and necessary, they seem to have mixed results. One solution seems to create two or three more problems that we didn't necessarily anticipate. It is difficult. It's very difficult to navigate through uncertain waters. And any decision made is certainly going to be less than perfect. Troubling times, however, are not unique. This time, as as current stats as I've found them, the death total for COVID this year is worldwide is somewhere around 1.2 or 3 million. And that's a lot. But I looked up some of these other worldwide death tolls, and it pales in comparison actually with some, the top five, I'll read them off, World War I, nine, over nine million deaths. World War II, shortly on its heels, around 16 million deaths. As far as plagues and disease, you perhaps have read about in the 14th century the Black Plague, 25 million deaths, 25 million. And really one of the worst recorded is the last century in often called the 1918 flu or the Spanish flu. It's an H1N1 virus, a virus that's still around. Killed a lot of people in 2009, by the way, but in 1918 through 1919, it killed at least 40 million people. And they had a hard time keeping records. It could very well have exceeded that number significantly. As bad as it was and as bad as it is and as it can be, we're not alone in facing trouble. Oftentimes we think in perspective of our own world and our own circumstance, but look beyond that. Job would put it this way, man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. It's a good way to remember it. Sparks flying upward. Well, man is born to trouble. In our text here in John chapter 14, Jesus does actually address the idea of trouble. His disciples are going to face an unprecedented amount of trouble. And he must prepare them, sober them up, to be ready for the trouble that is going to certainly come their way. Jesus Christ is about to be crucified. And to his disciples, he prepares them for that event. They're going to grieve, great grief in his suffering. Loss of all that they have dedicated their life to and sacrificed for over the past three years. They left everything to follow Jesus, and now Jesus is going to be crucified and taken away from them. They're going to have, as we know, joy in the resurrection of Christ, but they're going to face great opposition following. There's going to be trouble now in their day, 
They're on the precipice of it. And from now on. And as we talked about last week, virtually all of them would be martyred, literally, for their faith. Jesus leaves them with a clear and unmistakable charge in the text. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let's consider that in the context in which he gives it. We'll focus on the first three verses, but I'll just read it through verse 14. John 14, beginning verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I, I don't speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and The Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let us pray. Oh, Father, based on the words of Jesus Christ, we come to you now, calling you Father, and asking. I ask for great faith. I ask for great courage among your people. I ask for great conviction for the days to come. And may that overflow into the lives of as many generations will be raised up until they hear the voice of Christ. I pray that you will save them all. I pray that you will sanctify them all. And may we be servants of your glorious name. Grant great joy to your people even this day. In Christ's name, amen. I wanted to read it in a little bit of the context of this text, but our focus, as I mentioned, will just be on the first three verses. Jesus is providing comfort to his disciples before the troubling times that they will uh, experience. Remember, these disciples are going to make more disciples who will follow in the same pattern. Though this is directly given to them, it applies to everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ, who is a disciple, who is a Christian. And so, I hope you hear these words from Jesus Christ himself to you and to you this day. And before the time of trouble begins, what would he would say, or whether you're in the time of trouble, his message to you today would be this. Let not your hearts be troubled. He really gives three main reasons that we can hang on to in our mind and and first is a call to faith and then the security that he provides in his father's house and the assurance that indeed it is Jesus who said this and the promise that he made for you right now is enough to keep your heart from being troubled. 
Let's look at the first one here, and it really, I would say, it's a call to faith. In verse 1, it said, let not your hearts be troubled. This is singular, of course, in the Greek, but uh, our translation, the ESV, uses hearts because it is designed for the entire group. We would phrase it differently in English than they might have in the original language, so that's why some of your uh, versions have the singular heart or the plural. It is addressed to the group. Let not your heart be troubled. This, This idea of trouble is a disturbance or an anguish over things. If Walk with me a little bit in our text in John. If you jump back, if you remember, in verse 33 of chapter 11. John 11, 33. Here is a time of Lazarus' death. And Jesus, verse 33 of chapter 11, saw her weeping. And note here, the Jews that had come with her also weeping, and he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Spirit is pneuma here. He says he's greatly troubled. We went over this. He's greatly troubled here because he sees the hypocrisy of the Jews. These religious people that are really antagonistic against Jesus, and they're not really deeply sorrowful over the loss of Lazarus, They're just trying to create trouble and are very superficial about it. And this troubles Jesus. It's a troubling time. In his, and note this, it's in his spirit that he's troubled. Okay? And then jump to 1227. Here is a personal trouble that Jesus experienced. Not only sees the, the hypocrisy of these false teachers, but also, here's another troubling event. Here is anticipation of his own agony on the cross. And it was agony, it was painful. And so now, verse 27 of chapter 12, 12, 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled. Suke is the word in Greek there. It's immaterial, but I think the emphasis there is on really much more of an emotional aspect of it. His soul is troubled. It is a troubling time. In fact, he cries out, should the Father save me from this hour? But yet he knows in his mind, even though it's a troubling situation, this is God's purpose. Okay? He knows that. But it is a troubling time, nevertheless. And finally, 1321, here's another event of trouble. This is right here in our immediate context here. After these things, Jesus was troubled concerning the betrayal of Judas. He was troubled in his spirit, it says, Numa here. And he testifies, truly, truly, one of you will betray me. Well, these are just some close examples where Jesus had some troubling times. He had the troubling of these false prophets that came around. He had the troubling of his own personal suffering and anguish. He had the troubling of an insider who would turn on him and betray him. Very troubling times. He anticipates the disciples, and by the way, everyone who will follow Christ for you, that you will experience various types of troubling times. And so, the call then is not that you're going to be, that trouble will be eliminated in your life, but rather, as you go through them, to let not your, what, heart be troubled. It's a call to guard your heart. Cardia is mentioned here. Heart, in this context, means the mind. The world is full of trouble. And you will experience various levels of trouble, whatever it might be, in your life. But don't let your mind be overwhelmed or overcome by these circumstances. It's it's asking you to have a Christ-like outlook on life. One of his statements that I mentioned before, he knew God's purpose... In his suffering. It wasn't purposeless. And by the way, nothing occurs 
without God's intended purpose. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now you might have worked things out differently than the way he did. God is different. And you're not that familiar with God, although you think you might be. I think Jeremy and I were talking about that the other day. Why do people not fear God? Well, they're too familiar with the God of their own imagination. If you had to do things, you would do it differently, but you're not God. God is holy. He is above all, including his mind and mindset of what's going to go on. You know, everything that is done, as we've seen in trying to even mitigate our pandemic, it always has some consequences that follow. You know, you try to do something and you're just trying to find the best of things. Well, God knows what he's doing. And he's accomplishing his will. And so whatever trouble that you might be in, because you will have it, The call for Jesus Christ for you today is don't let your mind be troubled. You may feel great anguish, anxiety, great suffering, but don't let your mind be troubled. If you want to see it, you can. I'll read a passage in 2 Corinthians. Here, Paul is defending his apostleship. He's accused by some of not being a a valid apostle. (laughs) which, looking back on it, seems ridiculous to me that anybody would challenge him. But nevertheless, they did challenge him. That was part of his trouble, right? You would think the Apostle Paul would walk in with great respect and authority. If he came in here, I would not be preaching. He would be here, right? We would put him up. But Paul describes his circumstances He says, I've had far greater labor than other so-called followers and apostles of Christ. Far more imprisonments. This is 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 23. 2 Corinthians 11, 23. Far greater labors, far greater imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Which, by the way, I think he actually died and that's when he went to heaven. Don't know that for sure. And then resurrected. But I digress. He was stoned and that means they, they, they they threw stones at him. They piled it upon him to kill him. Like Stephen was stoned. That's the idea. Three times, he says, I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was drift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, and danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, and often without food, in cold and exposure and Apart from the other things, there's this daily pressure on me of the anxiety for all the churches. And, and by the way, I think that word there, anxiety, is better translated concern or care. It's not that he was anxious in his spirit. It's just that he had a weight of care and concern for all the churches. This is Paul's experience. It's much trouble. That he experienced. And what is said here isn't even the half of it. Much trouble. Greatest apostle. Greatest servant of God. Much trouble. And in the end of his life he had his head lopped off. But Paul would tell the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11. He says, I have learned... In whatever situation I am in, to be content. What he's talking about, regardless of all the trouble and all the suffering, in his mind, he's content. It isn't that he doesn't hurt. It isn't that he doesn't suffer. It isn't that he didn't have care for the church. He did have care. 
Particularly if they're going away, he goes in, teaches them the gospel, they, they come to Christ, they grow in Christ, the next thing, they're going after false prophets. This is why he's writing here in, in, to the church of Corinth to straighten some things out. And it grieves him. So he does actually suffer, but in his mind he recognizes and he knows to be content in whatever search situation he might be in because he knows how to be brought low. And he knows how to abound. So whether things are going great or things are not so great, in his mind, he's content. In any circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And how would he do it? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Beloved, don't let your heart be troubled. Find your strength in Jesus Christ and him alone. If you find your strength in something else, it will absolutely fall apart. You've got to find your strength in Christ. You're not exempt from trouble. You're going to have it. But you can be strong in Christ and have your mind strengthened and have hope in him. That's what he would say back in John chapter 14. How will you have strength in Christ in troubling times? How will you have comfort in troubling times? Number one, believe in Christ. Have faith. That's what it is. It's a call to faith. Notice verse 1 of chapter 14. It says, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, if you read any commentaries on this, the folks will struggle with this phraseology. It may not mean much to you, but the way this is constructed in the original language, either one of these phrases, believe in God, believe in me, they could either be indicative, just a statement of subject, or it could be an imperative that is a call to do something, if you will. It could be translated either way, and so you have multiple ways, because each, each phrase can be translated either way, imperative or indicative, and then any combination of it. I think what makes most sense, in looking at the text itself, he recognizes that his disciples, and that's who it's to, they, they, they truly, these are believers. These are people who fear God. The Jew, they are uh, Jewish Christians now because they've come to Christ. So they do believe in God. They have that foundation. That's indicative. That, that's their circumstance. Jesus is saying one step further now, believe in me. Be a Christ follower. That's his argument. Since you believe in God then, believe in me. Because his argument goes this way, it's really kind of harder to believe in God because God's a spirit. And you have less identity and, with God and understanding of God. He's a spirit. When you talk about God, you often have to do it in man-centered ways. God's arm, God's ear, these kinds of things. God doesn't have an arm. He doesn't have an ear. But God incarnate does. <laughs> Jesus, you see? It's, it's a little easier, if you will, to believe in, God, in, in Jesus Christ. Notice in our text in John 14, he goes on, and I'll elaborate on this in a greater way later, but in verse 7 and following in chapter 14, he says, well, if you had known me, you would have known the Father. Now, Jesus and the Father, these are two separate persons. So, so where, where is he getting at? If you'd known me, you'd have known the Father. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. But Philip doesn't quite get what he's saying, and he says, show us the Father. And Jesus' response is what in verse 9? Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me? Philip. What's he saying? Jesus and the Father are of the same essence. They're God. In Jesus Christ, in this incarnate flesh, dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 
That's how you'll know the Father. That's how you'll see the Father. It is through Jesus Christ. They, they are one in that sense. And so he can say, well, if you've seen me, you, you, you've essentially seen the Father. Because I'm God. That's what he's saying. And if you don't believe what I say, then he said, look at all the works that I have done. All these miracles that I have done. Essentially, we, we are one. There is one God. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Or else believe on the count of works themselves. Jesus called them to absolute faith in him. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 16, verse 33, concludes this section, really. He said, I've said these things to you, John 16, 33, so that in me you will have peace. That's where you're going to have comfort in troubling times. It is going to be your faith in Christ alone. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. Take courage is the idea there. I have overcome the world. You're going to have tribulation in this world, but Christ is saying these things so that you will have peace in the midst of great tribulation. It is a call to faith. So if you're going to f disciple, follow Christ... You live, first of all, by faith alone. That's where you're going to have comfort in troubling times. That's how your heart will not be troubled. Your mindset, it is by faith in Christ. Number two, John 13 and verse 2. He reminds them in troubling times not only to have faith and believe in Jesus Christ, but also to have trust and belief and knowledge of the security that is in Christ Jesus. He's telling them before all this trouble is about to unfold upon them of what he is doing. Verse 2 of chapter 13, uh, 14. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. He says his Father's house, that's a Memorable way to talk about the kingdom of God, the, the very abode of God. You might think of heaven. Rooms here in our translation, maybe you're more familiar with the King James or the New King James that mentions mansions. There's mansions and you'll hear things made of that. The Greek word moni Latin is mansiones, which really means rooms. But in our idea, it's, in our language, it's um, the idea of a palatial estate, if you will. I remember growing up, we used to sing the song, Mansion. I've got a mansion over the hilltop. You ever sing that? It's made popular by Elvis Presley. I'm satisfied with a cottage below, a little silver, a little gold, but in that city where the ransom will shine, I want a gold one, the silver lined. <laughs> I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old, and someday yonder we'll never more wander, but walk on streets that are pure as gold. That song's a little misleading because you're not going to get a mansion made of gold and silver lined. The imagery here is not a private large house in a kingdom next to the palace where God is. The imagery in this text when Jesus says, I'm going to my father's house and I'm going to make a room for you is that you're going to the castle. The palace the greatest estate could be. There is no lesser estate that you'll be in. That's the imagery. And they're, they're using this physicality to try to explain that in your mind so that your, so that your mind would not be troubled in troubling times to know where your final abode is. 
Whatever you have may be totally ripped apart and destroyed in this life, but the promise that Christ has made is that you are, I am making room for you in my Father's house. That's where you'll be. You'll be with God. The, the oriental idea from this time about houses and, and way they practice would be just that way. A, a father, a patriarch would have a home. And then for his children, he would just simply add on to his home as his children expand to where the home became this palatial estate full of those that were part of his family. They were all together. They were all one, abiding together in unity, not in isolation. Human beings were not made to be isolated. That is the great suffering. That is torture in many respects, unless your mind is tortured. The idea is, no, that they will all be with God, brought in as children of God into the household of God. We have something far better than some little mansion down the road. Intimacy in the fullness of God's presence, the fullness of his joy. John will later describe this in greater detail, and it's worth taking a look at. I, I won't, I'll try to skip through this a little bit so I can finish sometime today. But just so that you can see it, and we'll look at Revelation a little bit. Let's look at Revelation just so you can see the beauty of it. And what he's trying to do is to describe it. Don't, don't get so hung up on every um, aspect of this, but just get this in general, what he's trying to explain uh, uh, something uh, glorious in uh, less than glorious terms, really, quite frankly, reminds me kind of as, like Ezekiel when he tries to describe the throne and house of God. But here in Revelation 21, and these plagues end, verse 9 of chapter 21, And the angel comes and, and he says to John, I'll show you the bride and the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down from out of heaven from God. And having the glory of God in its radiance. That's what he's trying to describe, the glory of God. It's radiant. It's like a, a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall, 12 gates, and the gates with 12 angels. And on the gates, the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the the three uh, on the, the west three gates and on the wall of the city had twelve foundations and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls the city lies four square its length is the same as its width and he measured the city with his rod twelve thousand stadia its length and width and height are equal and he measured its wall 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. This is a, described as a perfect cube. It would have held 2 million square miles. It's huge. The wall, verse 18, built of jasper. While the city was pure gold, like clear glass, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, sixth carnelian, and the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophis, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Can you imagine all of that in your mind? Whatever the most beautiful jeweled whatever you might see, it doesn't even compare 
to the radiance of God's glory. In fact, it is so glorious, you don't need a temple. That's what he says in the next verse. Because the temple is God Almighty and the land. It, it is so brilliant and beautiful, you actually don't even need a sun. And you don't need a moon by night. That's the next verse, verse 23. Why? Because the glory of God is shining. The glory of God gives its light. It is by its light that they Nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who doesn't, does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is promised to the saints of God whose name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. This is the glorious future for the saints. It's not based on speculative ideas, by the way. John just didn't come up with this in his own imagination. This is based on the testimony of who? Jesus Christ, the one you have faith in. It is based on the veracity of Jesus. He said, if I wouldn't have said this if I didn't mean it. Her faith is not based on the superstitions of good men. It is the word of Christ. Back to John 14, he says, It's me, and I'm going, and I'm going to do this. What? Prepare a place for you. That's the place. As John describes in Revelation, I'm going to prepare it. Now, he's going to prepare. What is he preparing? John gets a vision of it. Is he taking time to put all this together? I don't think it's a time element in Jesus' work in building this house, the structure, the edifice, if you will. Remember, it is Jesus who created all things. Without him was not anything made that was made, John 1, right? He, he merely could speak the word, and it instantly is in existence. So the preparation is not the time to make something grand and glorious. I think the preparation here is much more a focus on preparing you to enter into that kingdom. You, in calling you first to Christ, that's what needs to be prepared. And that's why we plea every single week to you to come to Christ. He's preparing this kingdom. And how will he prepare it? Well, he will need to regenerate people. The gospel will need to be preached. The Holy Spirit will need to go forth and regenerate the heart of the elect. And the beloved will need to respond in faith. That's the time element of preparation, preparing you for a place. Beloved, there will be a specific number of people that are called to Christ. They're called as bride. God is patient and he's not willing that any of them will perish. That's the preparation. But when it's complete, when the fullness of time comes in, then the end of the age will occur. This place, by the way, is being prepared for you. That is, you are being prepared for it. But it is you individually. This promise isn't indiscriminate, just thrown out to anybody. It is for you, for everyone who will respond in repentance and faith. And that preparation of your heart for the glorious kingdom of God in the secureness and beauty of his presence is a reason your heart should not be troubled right now. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, right? You understand what you have in Christ? Do you believe him? Do you understand what is being prepared? You for that? Huh. You, there's, there's nothing that can come along your way that would trouble you. No wonder these disciples... After the resurrection of Christ and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in their own heart, lived with great courage 
great conviction and great comfort even in the moments of crisis in their life, whether it's something personal or something within their whole country going on, they could stand and live for Christ. And I think all along, too, this echoing word that Christ gave him in verse 3 of chapter 13 rung true. And I hope it will for you, too. He makes a promise. And this is why you shouldn't be troubled. It is because of the promises of Christ. Verse 3 of chapter 14. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. We said before that Christ is the only mediator between God and men. John chapter 1 opens up with this, even this picture of the Old Testament, Jacob's ladder. There's a, that Christ is that ladder. Christ is the means by which we will be united with God. But here in this text, this is a promise to return. He's going away. Those disciples know that. They do see him go away. But Christ has promised that he will come again. And if you read what they wrote in inspired scripture, they constantly talked about Christ's return. That's how they lived. I said last week, that passage I read, the Lord is at hand. Do you believe it? Do you trust Christ? That's how to live in comfort in troubling times. Knowing that Christ will come. He promises his return. It's a little unclear the ending of all things. We call it eschatology. And we may have some disagreements on some of those exact details. We will find out in time. But I think scripture is fairly clear enough. Particularly it says here, I'm going away and I'm coming again. I'm coming again and I'm going to take you to myself. That's the main thing to note. He's coming for you. He won't leave you in trouble. He's going to send in heaven. His disciples are going to remain until... He is ready to come and get them. He gives them a commission to preach the gospel to all nations. And as I mentioned, this is going to continue. We don't know when it will end. When all the saints are redeemed, then will come the end. Revelation chapter 19, we'll look at that briefly, and then chapter 20. And I might get done before this evening, but we'll look at this real quick. Chapter 19 of Revelation, verse 11. 1911. Old Testament prophesied that Christ was going to come. It conflated all that was about it. Additional revelation is given, and we know what is, is now that we split it up in our own minds and think about the first advent and the second advent. Major events when Christ comes. First Advent is when he comes to suffer. The next is when he comes to rule. In judgment, verse 11 of chapter 19 in Revelation, it's pictured this way. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. That's the looking forward to what we would call the second advent. He's coming in judgment. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Do you know who that is? Yes, you do. It is Jesus. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen and white and pure and following him on white horses. He brings someone with him at this time of judgment. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, which he has to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thighs has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's Jesus Christ. 
This advent, this coming and judgment is followed by a thousand year reign on earth in which Satan is bound waiting the final judgment after this millennium. You'll find that in the next chapter, Revelation 20. I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the chain and he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that he must be released for a little while and then I saw the thrones and seated them on them were those whom had authority the judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been headed for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had received its mark on their foreheads and they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead didn't come into life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. This is a straight explanation of what we would call in theology the premillennial return of Christ. Christ comes, there's a judgment, and then there's a millennium. That's what the straightforward reading of the text says. Now, I said all that to remind you of John 13, 3, which is a little different. In this, Jesus is saying what? He's not coming in judgment. There is no this rain mentioned here. He says, if I go away, he's talking to his disciples, he's talking to you if you're a follower of Christ. If I go away, I'm coming again. I'm coming again to take you to where I am so that you may be forever with the Lord. That is the promise that we're looking for. Those that are in Christ are not looking for Christ to come as judge. You'll be spared that wrath and that judgment. Why will you be spared? Because he is coming to personally get you, to save you from the wrath to come. Is that a great reason to be not troubled? (laughs) To not have your heart be troubled? Because when the real judgment comes, you'll be snatched away. You want to see it? 1 Thessalonians 4. We've got another minute, maybe. I know people wrestle with this. I think it's clear in Scripture. The idea is this. The promise that you hang on to is Christ is coming to get you if you're disciples. So don't let your heart be troubled. Paul would explain this to the church at Thessalonica in chapter 4 and verse 13. He doesn't want them to be ignorant. They're concerned about those that have died in Christ thinking they're going to miss all of this. And he says, don't be uninformed, don't be ignorant. Verse 13 of chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians. We're not going to grieve like those who don't have any hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and he rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord that those who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself, verse 16, will descend from heaven with his cry of a command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord." I'll explain that in a second, but underline this, verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is comforting words in a time of trouble. So those that have died, they're not going to miss it. Those that have died in Christ, they're not going to miss it. And those that are alive at the coming of Christ, they're not going to miss it. What is this coming that he's talking about? He's talking about the snatching away of the saints. Some people call it the rapture. That's what the word means. And if you take the Latin translation of it, this word that's meant, that's translated here, caught up together. The idea is before this judgment comes, and Christ's coming in Revelation 19, Jesus Christ will gather his saints. They will not go through the great tribulation. Verse chapter 5 and verse 9. Why? 
of the same, of the same book, First Thessalonians, read on chapter 5 and verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has suffered all the wrath. You have no fear of the wrath to come if you're in Christ. If you're not, be afraid. Be very afraid. A sharp sword comes out of his mouth. So, Christ died for us. So whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. That's the call now. And it's repeated here, verse 11, which parallels with 4.18, doesn't it? Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you're doing. How can you be built up? How can you be encouraged? Because Christ is coming. The Lord is at hand. He's coming for you. That's a great encouragement in a time of trouble. It may be difficult at times, disappointing. There may be some emotional responses and various losses. But let not your heart, let not your mind, let not your outlook be troubled because of Christ. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you encourage our hearts, that we might solely trust in Christ alone. Truly believe in Christ. Have the assurance of our eternal inheritance in him, in the Father's house. And may we always plead, ever come so quickly, Lord Jesus. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Take a moment to think on these things privately where you're at.